We started a new preaching series looking at the book of Esther. Uh, I'm just going to take a few minutes to set the context again before we get into the passage. The context really is uh, right now we are in a season of winter. Right now in uh, 2022, January, we're in a season of winter. The days are short, the nights are long, uh, the sun is shy, even in the city. Even in the center of London, it is cold. Uh, we have to defrost the windscreen. You have to wrap up warm and put on your uh, kind of scarves and your hats. We're in a season of winter. And the world we are living in today very much seems, particularly over the last couple of years, to be in a season of winter. There's a global pandemic and lockdowns that we've been experiencing to a greater or lesser degree for the last two years. People are losing jobs. Cost of living is rising. The ugly reality of racism is plain to see. Systematic racism and stories of racism. And there are lies in everywhere we look on the news. Uh, the world we are living in is in a season of winter. Uh, and the book of Esther was written at a time of winter for God's people. It was written 2,500 years ago when the people of God were outnumbered, they were full of fear, and really they were struggling in living as God's people. The context of the book itself is that it was set in Persia, which is modern-day Iran. So Persia is uh, modern-day Iran today. Uh, and king at that time was a king called King Xerxes. He was one of the most powerful men who ever ruled at the time. He had an empire which was full of 127 provinces. Uh, he was godlike in his status when it came to how he ruled the empire and how people viewed him. King Xerxes, he ruled from this high citadel um, temple or palace in Susa. And he was this godlike, all-powerful, handsome figure. And the book of Esther is about the rule of King Xerxes. The book of Esther, too, is one of only two books in the Bible that does not mention explicitly God. The other book, in case you're going to be racking your brain, is Song of Songs. Uh, but God is very much at work in the book of Esther. And just as well as God is work, uh, there at work in the book of Esther, God is at work in the world today. The theological term, which we unpacked much more last week, but the theological term is that there is quiet providence. God is at work in the whispers. God is at work behind the scenes. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is sustaining all things by His powerful word. God is at work. God is there behind the scenes, in the whispers, in the unseen, in the seemingly insignificant ways. So that's the context, really, of the book of Esther. But I want to tell you that winters don't last. Winters don't last forever. Now, last week, Esther chapter 1, we read of how King Xerxes had this banquet. He had a banquet for six months. I mean, it must have been the most crazy party that there is, the most lavish party. I mean, think Las Vegas Think kind of the most kind of longest ever stag do. This thing went on for 180 days. It was the most lavish banquet you could imagine. 
And at the end of his banquet, um, King Xerxes sends a message to his wife, Queen Vashti, who is actually at another party. She's hosting a party for, for the princesses and the, the highfalutin noble ladies of the land. King Xerxes sends a message to Vashti and says, come, I want to show you off to my friends. I want to show you off to everyone at the party. But Queen Vashti says, no. She said, I'm not coming. I don't want to do that. I'm not coming. And so King Erxes has a pissy fit and banishes Queen Vashti. That was Esther chapter 1. Now, let me just tell you a story. When I was at secondary school, I went to secondary school uh, in Gants Hill, uh, which is not too far away from actually where we are here in Stratford. Uh, when I was at secondary school, something kind of happened to me that I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit. The previous summer, I'd been on holiday with my family, and I can't remember where we'd been, but we'd been to a Christian bookshop, and I'd brought this little wallet thing. It was a little black wallet, I can still remember it now, which had a kind of, you pierced it together, flipped it together, and it opened up. You kept all your coins in there, and on the front of this kind of black leather wallet, it said, God is love. And I remember buying it kind of as a 13, 14-year-old, whatever I was, buying it with my pocket money. And, and I would keep kind of all my pocket money in this little black wallet that said, God is love. Now, as we went back to school in September, I, I kind of kept this little wallet in my bag. It had my lunch money or it had my kind of extra money, you know, uh, if you're going to buy sweets or whatever it was uh, from the shop on the way home. So I kept all my coins in this little wallet. But one day, when I was out with my friends kind of thing, we were messing around playing football, and, and out of my bag kind of came this wallet. And one of my friends picked it up and saw this black wallet that said in gold writing, God is love. And he starts laughing. He goes, ha, look at this. Ah, who's is this? Who's is this? It's like, who's is this? And I didn't say anything, but everyone worked out. Oh, it's Marks, it's Marks, it's Marks. Ah, look at you, you Bible basher. Hey, you don't believe in that rubbish, do you? God is love. You got this God is love wallet. <laughs> and then, to my terrible discredit, I said, it's not mine. It's my mum's. It's not mine. It's my mum's. I was so embarrassed that this wallet had been found that I lied about it. And you know what? I kept protesting. It's not mine. It's not mine. It's not mine. Do you know what? I'm going to prove it. I take all the money out and I chucked it in the bush. And it was lost. Chucked it in the bush and kept the money in my pocket, but the God is love wallet was gone forever. So embarrassed about this. So embarrassed about saying I was a Christian. So embarrassed about saying, no, that's mine. God is love. Let me tell you another story that kind of uh, is along similar lines. When I was a bit older, when I was like 18, 19, used to go out with some of my friends uh, to the pub, again in Ilford or Romford, um, places like that. And, and as we'd be chatting in the evening on a Saturday, everyone would be saying, what are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing on Sunday? Oh, you're doing this, doing that. What are you doing? Mark, what are you doing tomorrow? I was like, oh, Sunday's family day. Oh, do you want to come out? Do you want to do this? No, no, Sunday's family day. Oh, okay. Now, that was kind of half true. We always had Sunday lunch as a family. It was always a highlight of, of the week. It really, really was. Loved it. But I went to church in the morning. I actually went to church in the evening. And I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed going to church. Really enjoyed everything about church. But to say to my friends, that, oh, Sunday, I'm going to church. At that stage, I just couldn't do. I was embarrassed. I, I, I lied. I hid that part of my identity and who I was. Romans 12, 
and verse 2 says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. We all have a choice, you know, and the choice we have is whether we conform or whether we transform. Esther and Mordecai, who we're going to meet in a minute, conformed to the culture around them. They disguised their identity and conformed. Now, you may, be, you may hear this. What did you say, Mark? Esther and Mordecai conformed to the culture around them. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Because when we hear Esther and Mordecai, we tend to think they're rock-solid dudes. We tend to think that Esther was the female version of Daniel, that she was kind of like ultimately never wavered, bold, never floundered. Now, we will get to it. They did take courageous stands for God, but not before they didn't. And you know what? That is what I love about the Bible. The Bible is full of complex Bible characters. It's full of complex people like you and me. It's full of kind of multidimensional people. I mean, Moses, Moses who led the, the Israelites through the Red Sea and out of Egypt was a murderer. He was a complex character. Joseph, who became kind of the, the prime minister of Egypt, was a muppet, was the most annoying brother you could ever have. You just want to punch. And yet he became the prince. He became the prime minister of Egypt. Peter, who, who denied Jesus flat out when, when Jesus was about to be crucified, was the one who, who preached on Pentecost and the one on whom the church was founded. The Bible is full of complex, real people like you and me and like Esther and Mordecai. So let's get stuck in. This is a fun passage. Youth, you're going to have lots of questions about this. Uh, so let's get stuck into Esther chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read from verses 1 to 4 to start with. After these things, when the anger of King Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti, that's his wife, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for our king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king become queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So after these things, just so we set it up, chapter 2, after these things, there's a four-year gap between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. Four years since Vashti has humiliated King Xerxes. In that time, Xerxes made this ambitious, kind of but disastrous attempt to go and conquer Greece. He, he basically, you can read it in history books, but he basically wanted to outdo his dad. He wanted to do better than his dad. So he thought the way to get a bigger empire to do better than my dad is to go to Greece and conquer Greece. He wanted this glory and to make a name for himself. But he went to Greece and he lost 
Again, I'm not recommending this film and I've not seen it, but if you've seen or heard of the film 300, that film is about King Xerxes and his mighty army going to Greece and the 300 or the small army of Greece defeating the mighty Persian army of King Xerxes. So, so Xerxes has lost this war and he comes back home. And, you know, he's lost the war, he's lost a wife, and life is miserable. You know, you can imagine he lost the war. Okay, I'm going to go home. My wife will be there. No wife. Oh, yeah, I banished her. Okay, so, so, so then what he does is he, he kind of sends out this order for the Persian version of The Bachelor. I mean, that's, that's basically what it is. A context, sorry, a context, a contest for King Xerxes to choose the most beautiful woman in the vast empire to become his wife and the queen. Now, theologians and commentators say that this, this, there's an estimate that there's between 400 and 1,400 kind of women who came for this bachelor contest. That's the estimates. That's a lot, a lot of women. And, and they're coming and they're going to have a year to prepare themselves, basically a year's spa. I mean, that was what was offered. Go gather up all the beautiful virgins around the empire, bring them to Susa. They have a year's spa. A, a year to do their nails, a year to get ready, a year to do everything. They prepare themselves for one night with the king. The woman who pleases the king most becomes the queen. The rest of them, they would join his kind of harem. They would become kind of like a concubine. But what it meant was they couldn't then see their family ever again, and they couldn't ever marry again or see another man. So the odds weren't great. One in 400, one in 1,000, whatever you want to say. But that's what is set up. I mean, you can imagine the, uh, the TV ratings. You can imagine that how crazy social media was going to go on that. You can imagine how Twitter and, and TikTok would kind of just explode with this bachelor contest of Persia. Who will become King Xerxes' queen? Let's read on. Starting in verse 5, we're going to read till verse 11. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadashah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people, or kindred. For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. 
And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Okay, we can brush over the first few verses, verse 5 and 6, but something really important is happening there. Because if you were a Jew reading this, you would have loads of questions. You go, whoa, 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 whoa. What is happening here? Why? This is what a Jew, a godly Jew would be reading this saying, why is Mordecai in the citadel of Susa? Why is he living at the epicenter of Persian influence and government? He was basically living like right by Parliament Square or, or in Washington, D.C., right by Capitol Hill, right by the White House. He's living right by the center of power. Why is he living there when Jews are called to be set apart from the other nations? Even more than that, why is he working for a Gentile, godless king? Now, you and I may say, ah, oh, no big deal. Good for Mordecai. He's got a good job. Good for him. But no, to a Jew, this was a big deal. Like I said, Jews, they would know this from Deuteronomy, from the scriptures. They were called to be set apart. I mean, Mordecai is a pagan name. He was living at the heart of the pagan power and culture on the payroll of a pagan king. And here's the other key thing that you can not know and, and brush over. He didn't have to be there. He could have left. Because King Nebuchadnezzar took the Israelites and took them in captivity to Babylon. But a Lakic king, King Cyrus, then freed the Israelites. He basically said, Israelites, do what you like. You're here, you're in Babylon, but it's up to you. You can go back home, you can stay and work, it's up to you. But you're not here any longer are under compulsion. So, so, so he was free, Mordecai was free to do what he liked. He could have returned to Jerusalem as Ezra and Nehemiah did. You know, the book of Nehemiah, it's all about going back and rebuilding the ruins of Jerusalem. That has happened before the book of Esther. He could have been back rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, but he chose to stay in Persia, in Susa, under the employment of a pagan king. He was a bit of a wheeler dealer. He got a good deal. He basically, his life was full of compromise and comfort. Mordecai at this moment was a classic, lukewarm, nominal Christian. Yes, he belonged to God, but he didn't like to tell anyone. He wasn't walking and living for God. He was silent. He was passive. He was hiding and he was living in compromise. And he instructs Esther to do the same. That's what verse 10 says. Esther had not made known to King Xerxes that she was a Jew. Why? Because she was following Mordecai's example. Esther was an orphan, as, as, as we've read. And it's interesting that, that, that the Bible gives her two names. She has the name Hadasha, which is from the Hebrew word myrtle, which means righteous. And she has the name Esther, which is a Persian god. Esther is named after a Persian god, Ishtar. So it's interesting, even in Esther, we see this split personality. We see this split identity. Yes, she's Jewish, but yes, she's got this Persian name, and she, she lives under the pretense of, of everything in Persia. Mordecai, I mean, when you think about it, Mordecai has entered the, his kind of niece, or kind of like this 
young. I mean, they think Esther was probably kind of 19 or early 20s. That's what commentators say. She's around that age. He's entered her into this bachelor content. He, he knows the context. He knows what's going to happen. He knows it's about sleeping for one night with a gentle king, Gentile king, and, and all the while keeping it a secret who she is. All the while keeping her identity a secret. He knows that, and yet he's entered Esther into that contest. So all we've read up until this point in Esther chapter 2 is about compromise. All we've read is about disguise, hiding your identity, all we've read is pretty cowardly. We're meeting Mordecai and Esther for the first time in the book of Esther, and I wonder, are you a bit disappointed? Uh, they're layers of compromise. Uh, they're hiding of their Jewish identity. I mean, if Mr. Mordecai walked in, you know, would you ask him, Mordecai, why did you do it? Why did you let Esther be all spruced up for, for one night with the king. How many laws of the Torah have you broken, Mordecai, by, by doing this? But I wonder what Mordecai's reply might have been. Mark, you weren't there. You don't know how crazy, how mad that king was. He's a dictator. He's got a screw loose. He is mad. You, you don't know. I wanted to keep my precious Esther safe. Or maybe Mordecai might have said, well, it's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. I worked at the palace. It's all part of the plan. I made friends with Haggai, the head of the harem, and I got favor for Esther and special treatment. It's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan that I've got. Then again, Mordecai might look me in the eye and say, Mark, you can't even say, or you couldn't even say to your friends when you were 19 that you went to church. And Mark, you were embarrassed by a little wallet that said, God is love. Mark, you are as much an embarrassment as me. You see, there's a compulsion in all of us to hide our identity as the children of God. Now, not in Persia, not necessarily in this context that we're reading in Esther chapter 2, but at work or a school or at university, or with our unbelieving friends. There's a compulsion and a temptation to hide who we are in Christ, to hide our identity as believers in Jesus Christ. At some point, each of us has to figure out who we are, what our identity as a Christian means to how we actually live our lives. And we, each of you, you face many of the same temptations that Mordecai and Esther faced. I mean, I'll give you just a couple. So, so Persia was a very tolerant society. It was. A bit, bit, bit like a society we live in today, which is relatively tolerant until, as Christians, you say, well, there's one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. You can believe what you like, except an exclusive belief that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. You know, there's a temptation to hide that. There's a temptation to sugarcoat that. There's a temptation not to speak up. But at some point, we need to work out, who am I as a believer? What is my identity as a Christian? 
does that affect how I live my life? Whether it comes to matters of identity, whether it comes to matters of sexual ethics, whatever it may be, there is always a challenge. Will I speak up? Will I say that actually as a believer, things are different? Because I'm a Christian, because I'm a lover of Jesus, then this is how I live. That this is what I believe. Let me just read a beautiful verse. 1 John 3 verse 1. It's from the message. And it just says this. What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously. Because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. If you're a parent with your kids kind of of a certain age, you'd have had this experience when your children go away on a school trip. Or your children go away on a summer holiday camp. And you're leaving them for a prolonged period of time. What do you do or what do you say in that goodbye moment? You don't really give them much advice. Oh, try this. Don't do that. Don't. You're not really too worried about that. You might have spoken to them about some advice previously. But in that goodbye moment, most of us will say to our child, look, I love you. Don't forget that. You're special. I love you. You, 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 you mean the world to me. I love you. In other words, as parents, we're reminding our children of who they are. We're reminding them of what really matters. As Christians, I want us to be reminded of what really matters. That you're a citizen of heaven. That you are loved by God. That you have a heavenly father who loves you, who sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. When you look at the empty cross, you know that you are special to God. Okay, let's read on. Let's find out what happens in the last part of what we're going to read from Esther chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 12 through to 18. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go to King Xerxes, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying. Six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman women, sorry, went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem, in custody of Shazagaz. What a great name. Shazagaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abilahau, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, 
in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than any of the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her his queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Okay, after 12 months of spa treatment, it's Esther's turn. I don't know, Esther, what was she, number 325. Right, Esther, number 325, your turn tonight. And there's this moment. She's going to be the queen. She's going to be a concubine, never see her family again. Kind of that's the life that she's got laid out in front of her. A year's preparation for one night. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this. When Esther was taken to King Xerxes, to his royal palace, Sorry, sorry, that's verse 16, sorry. Now, Esther was winning favor, that's the word, favor in the eyes of all who saw her. In verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. Here's the thing about what we've just read. The favor of God and the grace of God was on Esther. It was God that made the difference. What made King Xerxes love Esther more than all the other women that he saw in that period of time? It was the favor and the grace of God. You see, Esther gives us hope because God takes up messed up, rebellious people, people who've compromised, people who've lied about their identity, weak believers like you and me. God takes us and shows his favor on our lives. Esther was not particularly walking with God, yet God's favor was upon her. Esther did not deserve the love of God, but she received it. God's favor and grace was upon her. God's favor and grace comes upon undeserving, sinful people like Esther and like you and like me. Esther got herself into this situation, or you could argue Mordecai and Esther got herself into this situation. It wasn't ideal. You know, it was not ideal, this situation that Esther got herself in. You and I get ourselves into situations that are not ideal. We make bad choices. We, we, we make wrong choices. We get ourselves into difficult situations. And God would say to you, no, I'm not going to take you out, like kind of like of that situation. No, no, no. But I'm going to give my favor upon you in that situation to help you through that situation. That's God's, God's favor. That is God's grace. And that is what we see here in the book of Esther. In all the compromise, in all the lies, in all the disguise, in all the lukewarm believing that God could do miracles, in all that we read, in all that, this is weird. This is a bachelor contest. What is going on? What is going on here, God? In all of that, God's favor and grace is at work 
behind the scenes. God's quiet providence is at work. And Hope Church, each one of you, I want you to know, whatever your mess of a life that you may be feeling, wherever you may have compromised God, wherever you are just lukewarm and hiding your identity and not speaking out as a true believer and certainly not set apart like God's people are, are supposed to be, God's favor, God's love, God's grace can come upon you and at any moment in time transform the situation that you find yourself in. Let me conclude. Let me bring this to a conclusion. We all have moments, seasons when we compromise. All of us. Times when we've denied Jesus, times we've not spoken up, times we've done this, that. We are flawed, thank you so much, sinful children of God. We are. And in that time, in that moment, we need to remember who we are. That we are children of God. That that is our identity. God is at work. God's favor and God's grace is at work. Now, here's the thing. We are a page away in the book of Esther. We are a page away from a fifth century coming to Jesus moment. We'll see it next week. We're, we're a page away from Esther and Mordecai being transformed in how they stand up for God. That is to come. A moment where they blow us away with their courageousness in standing for God. Where they partner with God and they go again. But it's so important to see the whole picture of Esther and Mordecai, that the complexity of Bible characters, because each of us is complex, and each of us gets it wrong, and each of us gets it right, and then we get it wrong, and then we stand up for Jesus, and then we hide away, and then we speak out, and then we keep quiet. That's us. That's Esther, and that's Mordecai. What we're going to do in a moment is we're going to share communion together. Under your seat, you should find uh, a little receptacle which has uh, a little wafer on the top and it has a small amount of grape juice underneath. So in a moment, we're going to share communion together. And the reason why we're going to do that is because in sharing the bread and the wine, we remember who we are. We remember who we are as Christians, we remember our identity. We remember that we are children of God. Whatever your week may have been like, whether you have compromised and disguised and, and hid in terms of your faith, or whether you are bold and courageous, whatever, in the bread and the wine, in remembering who we are, we remind ourselves afresh that we are children of God. So we remember that. And then it's a fresh opportunity to go again. It's a fresh opportunity to go again. And that's what we'll see next week. Esther and Mordecai, they go. They stand. They're courageous. They stand for God. So when we take the communion, as we will do in a moment, 
We're going to be remembering. And then it is a fresh moment to go again, to be courageous, to stand up for Jesus, to live out our identity of who we are in Christ. Band, could you come up ready? We're going to worship as well off the back of this. Just going to get one of the communion cups myself. Let's take a moment to pray. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, I thank you that the Bible is full of complex, flawed characters, like each one of us.